So the next speaker I'd like to introduce today um, to talk about the regulation of nurses in New South Wales and what happens when a, nurse, when a complaint is made about a nurse is Dr Margaret Cook from the Nursing and Midwifery Council of New South Wales. And this really is Margaret, so I'll make sure I've got the right name this time. I've had a coffee since I last spoke to you, so I'm, I'm much better and switched on now. So um, thank you, Margaret, for coming along today. It'll be great. Um, if we'll keep our questions uh, till, the, till the end of Margaret's presentation, that would be great, and we'll have a chance to um, hopefully um, ask a few questions and have them answered. So welcome, and thank you, Margaret. OK. Um, and before we start, who's, um, who's ever made an error at work? That's just to go show you how many, how, how common making errors are, and we're not about dealing with error, errors, um, simple one-off errors. Uh, okay, how many of you have um, made a complaint about someone to the council? Okay. Um, how many people have raised concerns about one of their peers? So. We're all um, regulated under the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law, and that's a bit of a mouthful. It started in 2000, July 2010. It's a national law, but it's actually implemented at a state level. So each state implemented the same law. It's not a federal law. Um, and what happened because of that is that New South Wales, of course, likes to be a little bit different. And so um, part eight of the law, which deals with notifications and complaints, um, we have adopted a, sep a different section, you know, the part eight is specific to New South Wales and it's specific to New South Wales because the HCCC is a co-regulator, the Healthcare Complaints Commission, and we also have the Healthcare Complaints Act. Both of those deal with complaints um, made in New South Wales. So the objectives of regulation are to protect public safety, to um, maintain professional standards and to maintain the confidence and trust in the profession. And they also added um, in this new law um, the importance of workforce flexibility and sustainability. So we wanted to make sure that we had a workforce that we could um, uh, you know, provide healthcare services in, in the future. And that's in the rural and um, uh, urban se sections. So, that, that, they're the objectives, but we definitely see um, regulation of nurses as being a shared responsibility. And each, each part of the workforce, so the individual health practitioner, peers, managers, employers, patients, as well as um, the regulate, regulatory um, bodies, play an important role in, in that um, system. So for an individual practitioner, it's about being aware of um, what their standards are, understanding and applying them. Um, who's read the new standards? Okay, I would recommend you go to um, the APRA website and just have a look at them because they're the standards of practice and that would be what you are going to be evaluated um, in terms of performance review or you know, if you ever get a complaint made about you that they're one of the standards that we will look at as well. So it's really important that you know the standards that you're working under. Um, 
One of the other important things is that um, nurses uh, have a continuous cyclical reflection on their practice. So we're, we're not going to make sure that we're maintaining our standards unless we think about what we're doing and how we can improve it. Um, so, and that means reporting incidences and errors that you identify in the system. It's worse to actually observe something happening that's going wrong and not do anything. I'll, I'll repeat that. If you see something going wrong and not do anything, that's really, really bad because you are contributing to, to a possible unsafe environment. Um, so be responsible and be accountable. So if you've got see a peer that's um, perhaps not doing the right thing, then just tell them. You know, you, I don't mean you necessarily have to report them, but just say that's not the way you should be doing it. You know, the policy is A, B or C. And if the person keeps on say, doing it or, um, you know, they, they kind of say, what do you know, whatever, then just report it up to the next level and um, make sure the next person knows that you have concerns about safety for this reason. Managers um, are also important in terms of providing um, continuous cyclical um, review and feedback, so, and supervisors as well. So, but, but it's, it's important that, that people are receptive of feedback. So don't just say, what do they know? But actually think about it. Okay, they may not be right, but think about it and, and see whether maybe you could improve in some area. <laughs> You might not totally agree with the person, but think about it. Um, employers have an important um, role in terms of their leadership policies, guidelines, um, facilitating um, education, but it's still your individual um, responsibility to make sure that you are educated. And obviously, from being here, you're all aware of that. Um, and then patients, you wouldn't think patients would be responsible too, but there's a lot of programs now where patients are advised, look, make sure, you, you know, if you see someone come into your room and they don't wash your hands, get them to wash your hands, you know. So there's, there's also, and I don't mean that they should be responsible for that, but just that they have the right to be able to, to make that comment without, you know, getting a snippy nurse saying, you know, you know fancy them asking me that. So they have a right to make sure that they have um, adequate um, care as well. So how does re regulation work? How do you think regulation works? What, what sorts of things do regulators do to make sure that things are safe and standards are met? Well, that's one way, yep. Oh, yep. So the first thing they have to do is set the standards. Um, so they've recently gone through a process and I think a lot of um, enrolled nurses were actually involved in, in looking at those standards for practice and making comments on those standard practice. I'm not sure, what, did anyone here make a comment on them? Yeah. So it's really important when um, the National Board is putting out consultation papers and you know, asking for comment that, that you should put some comment in. And it may be that you do it as a group in your hospital or something, but it's, it's really important that you look at those documents because they're your standards. Um, so the other place is accreditation of courses. So what kind of subjects are taught to you? That's another way we regulate the standards. Um, the registration of qualified people. So we make sure that people either meet that qualification or if they're coming from overseas, that they've got an equivalent qualification. And sometimes we do an assessment of that. Um, some 
regulators actually make you do an exam before you get registered after the course. Um, there's also, once you've been registered, um, one of the things that the, the National Board does is ask you to declare that you're aware of the standards and you're meeting the standards and that you've done your CPD, etc. So declarations at renewal, but they also audit those declarations. Has anyone been audited? Two people? Yep. Um, how did that go? Was it? <laughs> what was terrible? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's good. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit naughty. I kind of get, when I do courses, I kind of stick it in my drawer. So I've got them all there, but um, uh, sometimes writing it up and writing up a reflection of what you've learnt from that, that course at the time is a good idea as well. So auditing. Um, then there's the management of, plate, of complaints. So when complaints are made by people, um, we look at that and see what, how we need to actually address any um, performance issues. Um, and then monitoring restrictions. So if, if after that complaint we think that they need some restrictions on their, their practice, then we would monitor that. So they're the ways that we can do um, to uh, you know, ensure that standards are being met and safety. But it's reactive. So, well, some of, at least with the, um, the complaints, it's reactive to a complaint. We're preventing future errors, not current errors. And, and the best way of making sure a place is safety is identifying risk early or concerns early and managing it as soon as possible. And that may not be the regulator. It's much better to, to deal with things much as early as possible so they don't get to us. So in New South Wales, there's a variety of organisations that, uh, that deal with all those functions and people get really confused about this and even um, people working in regulation, I think, get confused about this as well. So it's not an easy thing. Who thinks ARPA registers nurses? Well, that's good. Who registers nurses? That's right. The Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia registered, registers nurses. What APRA does is maintain the register so they, and they support the boards in their work. So I work for the Health Professional Councils Authority. I support the councils who actually make the decisions. So the National Board is the one that makes the decisions about standards, about registration, about all those things. Um, APRA is the organisation that supports the boards to do that work, but they also maintain the register. So they just make sure that the, the register is accurate. And they receive complaints as well. So the other, other organisations, um, uh, as I said, in New South, in, in, in the rest of Australia, the National Board um, and APRA do everything. They manage complaints, they do the standards, they do everything. In New South Wales, there's a division where the um, HCCC and the Nursing Midwifery Council manage the complaints and APRA and the National Board, um, you know, do the standards, the accreditation of courses and all the other things. It's a bit of a separation. Um, so the role of the council um, and in, in terms of managing complaints, our, our um, role is to 
the same as the National Board, maintain safety, increase commitment to professional standards and um, contribute to safe cultures. Now, we can only do that through you. You're the ones that are actually working in those cultures and being safe. Um, and we do that by effectively managing um, individual um, complaints and by building capability and capacity and that's you know coming along and, and giving talks to people um, in the main um, and we try and engage and influence the system as well and that's to identify risks manage risks and minimize harm but as I said it's a shared responsibility so we work in a protective jurisdiction and what do we mean by that is that we're not out to harm um, or punish nurses what we're interested in doing is making sure that they're safe. Unfortunately, a lot of nurses, when they've had complaints made about them, do feel like that we're out to punish them, and that's unfortunate, but we're definitely not. Um, so what we have to do is, is first look at um, the evidence for unsatisfactory performance, for unsatis unsatisfactory professional conduct, or impairment. Now, impairment is... Um, a health, a disability, mental health problem, physical health problem, drug and alcohol addiction, those sorts of things that has the potential to impact on performance. So it's not the illness by itself, but that it has a potential to, to impact on performance. So if someone's getting pr appropriate treatment, I mean, I'm sure there'd be a lot of um, practitioners out there with depression and a whole lot of other things that they're managing well. They're going to the um, have treatment for it, they're taking sick days when they need to, and they're managing their health well. Um, but there are some nurses that don't, and that impacts on their, their performance or practice or has the potential to do that, and they're the ones that we deal with. Okay, um, so... There, we look at the evidence um, that is there for those um, when, when a complaint's made um, and we look at whether it's been an error, a mistake, um, a shortcut. So you, when a person knows what they're going to do but take a shortcut for a variety of reasons or whether it's kind of intentional or reckless and so it's almost negligent in, in the actions that they, they take. And there are different actions we take for different levels. Um, so whether the, the practitioner demonstrates insight is looked at um, and whether they understand the professional standards, what efforts the, the practitioner has made to improve their skills and knowledge following the complaint. So their activity after the complaint is really important. Whether everybody makes a mistake, it's what you do with that mistake. And, um, and so we, we really do look at um, what they do, do after the complaint and how they react to that complaint in a professional way or not. Um, what are the contributing factors? So there, there are often systems, um, things that play into um, the behaviour of nurses. So we look at that as well, but taking into account that, that an individual nurse is accountable for their behaviour as well. And it's important, one of the things is that we're looking for a pattern of behaviour. As I said, everybody here has made a mistake probably, but we want to, we're not interested in those one-off off errors. What we're interested in is, is there a pattern of um, errors? We also look at serious errors as well, so things where the majority of nurses wouldn't have made that mistake. So it may have been a one-off off, um, 
occurrence, but it was a serious error. So we would look at more carefully if there has been serious harm um, caused as well. And what we're looking at is the potential for future harm. So it's the context of the conduct, including the practitioner's behaviour following the conduct in question, which is the utmost significance. We've had a case where two nurses were involved with putting up blood and they didn't do the, the appropriate checks. And we considered the case. We asked them to do a reflection. We asked them to come for a performance interview. One nurse said, was horrified that she had made that mistake, had done, you know, X courses around blood um, administration since the incident occurred, um, apologised um, for, for making that mistake. Um, and uh, was being supervised in the workplace. The other nurse said it was everybody else's problem, it was the other nurse's patient. She should have been more careful. Um, and uh, when there, there was an attempt to put in a learning program for her in the workplace, she left the employment. So we dealt with those nurses very differently. Um, one nurse, we said, don't do it again. Um, we can see that you've done a lot of work. We're going to keep a record of this, but um, uh, just keep on you know, making sure you do your CPD. The other nurse, we put conditions on her registration, immediate action conditions, because we were concerned about her, um, the way she was dealing with it and, and, and considered it may, may have been unsafe. And she would have gone to a performance assessment. Two very different outcomes for the same thing. So. That's what we mean by protective. We're about safety, not about punishing nurses. How many complaints do we get? There's 102,000 nurses in New South Wales, um, and that's about 27 points, well, it is 27.6% of all nurses in, in Australia. And we have 610 um, complaints a year, which is only about 0.5%. So most nurses practice well. Unfortunately, the rate of um, notifications was going up in the first five years. Um, it seems to have stabilised now. I looked at the figures for this year and it's around the same, between you know, 590, 510, somewhere in that, that ballpark, which is good news for me. <laughs> um, so what kind of complaints? About 29% conduct, so that's kind of disrespectful um, behaviour, criminal behaviour, breaches of law, breaches of condition, those sorts of things. Um, health impairment, which I've just uh, I spoke about a bit earlier, and um, is 27% and 44% performance. Now, even though health impairment seems to be the smaller, they seem to stay um, in the system, in the programs that we run for much longer. Performance, we can usually deal with a little bit quicker. And I actually um, had a look at the um, complaints just for enrolled nurses for this, and I looked at over, over for two years, and there were about 136 complaints in the two years. So if you look at you know, the number of complaints um, overall, which was, um, I think, 610, the first one, and 595. So anyway, it was about 12% um, of complaints were... Um, for enrolled nurses. And I don't know whether that's the same proportion of, of the population, you know, that how many enrolled nurses, I'd have to check that. 
I've, I, that's the next slide. Um, so the sorts of complaints, health impairment, very large, 49, um, which would, that's about, sounds like about a third, I suppose. 49 um, out of 136, I should have done the proportions too, shouldn't I? Is the highest, um, followed by clinical care and pharmacy and medication, um, and 14 um, were behaviour. So they're the main things. Now, documentation, there's only two, and, and um, and communication only three, but often they're incorporated in those other ones as well. Co communication and documentation comes up a lot, but um, there, are, you know, clinical care is often a multiple thing of which those are a component. So, who's responsible for reporting? Thirty-one percent, um, and this is not enrolled nurses. This is the whole population of, of nurses. So. 31% are employers, 12% um, registrants, uh, um, and that could be a self-report or an, um, another practitioner, so a treating practitioner, um, or for, in terms of impairment, um, or a colleague, um, so 12%. Uh, healthcare or education providers, and again, they're usually like the healthcare providers that aren't employers. It's usually because the person has been admitted to a hospital and been reported that, that through that way, or they've been going to um, they're doing a course and they've been identified as um, having a health impairment because you, you that's the only thing you can only report a, a student for criminal behaviour or impairment. They can't be reported for performance because, of course, they're learning. And 21%, though a very small um, proportion, patients, relatives, friends of, of patients, those sorts of things, only 21%. Okay, before I get on to the next slide, um, who has heard about mandatory reporting? Okay, anyone like to give me one of the things that you need to report that's a mandatory notification? Um, that is a mandatory report, but not um, not necessarily for, for for under our law. It's under the child protection law or something, um, but not not the health practitioner regulation. But it is a mandatory report in another jurisdiction. Yes. So turning up um, to work under the influence of alcohol. Anything else? No. Um, it's an obligation of nurses to report their own. If they, if you have a criminal um, uh, conviction or charge, it's it's an obligation for nurses to actually report that to APRA. But it's not a mandatory notification. Pun. Um, it could be a mandatory notification. I'll, I'll put it on. So on the left-hand side, um, practising while intoxicated at work, impairment that's likely to cause significant harm. So that the likely to cause significant harm is the important thing. Um, 
significant departure from accepted standards. So if the medication error is a significant departure from um, accepted um, standards, that could be um, considered as a, a notification. But I, I'm sure everyone here has made a, a medication error. And so getting up to that threshold is a higher threshold than just a simple medication error. And sexual misconduct in the practice of nursing. So having a relationship with a patient, um, sexual relationship with a patient is also a mandatory notification. So they're the four things that if you see them, you're required to mandatorily not notify. So you could report, you know, report that on to your supervisor. Um, and if the supervisor makes a, a, a mandatory notification, then your obligation has, has gone away. But if they decide not, they haven't, and you're still satisfied that one of these um, uh, conditions or, or criteria apply, then it's your responsibility to, to notify. Yes, and the only, only people that can make mandatory reports are health practitioners, registered health practitioners, um, health service providers and education providers, they're the three. So patients can't make mandatory reports. Um, the other um, mandatory um, or referrals um, that have to be made, and they're under a different section of the law. So you've got the mandatory notification section of the law. Under a different section of the law, um, the chief superintendent is required to notify the executive officer and the national board when someone has been um, categorised as mentally incapacitated or an involuntary patient. Um, if a court convicts a, a, a registered practitioner of an offence um, to do with sex, violence or drug-related um, drug offence, they're required to notify the, the um, at the council and a coroner's, um, if a coroner's made a finding, um, they're required to, to notify us as well. So they're, they're the kind of mandatory referrals. But you can also make a voluntary um, notification just because something um, doesn't reach the threshold of a, um, of a mandatory report doesn't mean a person shouldn't be notified. If, if you think that the the person has been unsafe um, and it's likely that that's going to go on for a while and it's not being appropriately managed or, or unable because the organisation has, hasn't got enough resources. So some small aged care facilities don't have the, um, you know, the educators and whatever and they, they have a harder time of dealing with these things. They might report someone a little bit earlier. So, so you can, anyone can make a, a, a voluntary notification. So, so you can, you should make, you must make a mandatory notification if those criteria, but if they don't reach that criteria and you think there's unsafe behaviour that needs to be reported, you can make a voluntary report. All notifiers are, have protections under the law. You know, they, you can't be sued for libel if you are, have, um, are satisfied and have a good belief that whatever that person's doing is unsafe. And this is just the proportion of mandatory notifications um, that was received um, and the sorts of things. So we, um, we had about 23% 
about alcohol, 23% um, about mental health, 49% uh, about a substantial departure from professional standards and 5% um, sexual misconduct. So one reason to report um, when there's patterns of behaviour that are of concern is that you can't know um, what has been reported previously. So that nurse may have been in five other hospitals and we may have five other complaints that we haven't quite had enough evidence and your, your bit of information will tip the balance and, and, and be, you know, enable us to do something. Um, you don't know whether the registrant is working in other places. So they might be managing it well in your hospital, but they may have be employed in three other hospitals and you don't know about that. So that's another reason um, for telling us. Um, the, if, with national registrations, if we have a report and it's on record, then and then they move sta states, then that information goes and is shared with the other states. Um, and basically it's a sharing of responsibility, um, as I said, in terms of safety. So what can you do when you have a concern? The first thing is to speak to your colleague. You know, don't, don't go, you know, don't start by reporting up. Speak to the colleague and, and just have an uh, honest conversation with them. That's the best way to deal with it, deal with it early. Um, make your concerns known um, to your supervisor. Do you, do you make it straight away, every time? That, that's a decision that you'll have to make in terms of the context. Do you report to the, um, the council, the HCCC or NMC? You can report to any, any of us and it will go to, um, it'll come to the council and it'll go to the HCCC, regardless of whether you report to APRA, HCCC or, or the council. They get, that information gets shared and dealt with between the three organisations. Um, and then I said, as I said, make sure that if someone says something to you, to you don't just ignore it, reflect on it. And it's all about de de developing a culture where we're learning from each other. If you're making a complaint, what should it include? Um, who's involved, what, what's the who, what, why, when, when and how, really? Um, if you just go through that and provide that information and make sure that you support it with whatever evidence you've got. So if they've been taking drugs or miswriting mis up the um, drug book, then you know a photocopy of that page of the drug book is required, and those sorts of things. And we also want to know what actions have been put in place by the, the employers um, in terms of what kind of remedial action. So a report may be made to us that something's happened and the employer will say, we've put this in place, we've, we've you know, put, put a little bit of extra supervision, we've put a, um, a plan in for education, we've got um, uh, regular reporting going on. We'll say, great, we don't have to do anything. Call us back if you have any more problems. Closed. Um, so knowing what is being done by the employer, because it's much better that it's dealt with by the employer than coming to the, the, um, the council and using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Um, the grounds for 
complaint, um, criminal conviction, unsatisfactory professional conduct, unsatisfactory professional performance, and they're based on the standards. You know, if you look at the code of conduct and the um, standards for practice, that tells you what conduct is expected. Lack of competence, impairment, I've already um, talked about, and um, that the person's a suitable um, person, and that's to do with criminal behaviour. And there's also some information about how criminal behaviour is looked at on the NMBA website if, you, if you're interested. So if you ever get caught in terms of, um, you know, I don't know, traffic fines or whatever, have a look. Have a look at the criminal... Um, uh, I think they're guidelines, criminal guidelines um, on the National Board website. Um, the other grounds for complaint, accepting a benefit for a recommendation or health product. So that's when you're recommending to somebody to, to do, do that and that the person um, who has that product actually gives you some money for recommending it. So it's not on the basis of whether the product is good or the service is good, but because you're getting money. Pardon? Yeah. Um, and some other... Places that gets really sticky for nurses is um, the beauty, um, you know, cosmetic um, surgery. A lot of um, nurses work in cos cosmetic. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a really tricky one for them, really. Um, failure to disclose pecuniary interest in giving a referral or recommendation, um, engaging in over-servicing, supervision of um, unregistered super, um, assistants, so you, need, you can't actually um, tell an unregulated assistant to do something that they're not trained to do. So, so basically um, giving treatments or not giving treatments and charging them. Too many treatments, you know. Um, so in terms of nursing, it may be, you know, um, if you're doing community wound care or something like that and, and it's, they're being charged for that, it's private service and um, you say that I'm going to visit you every day for a week and really you only had to go once every fortnight or whatever and the person gets charged seven times as much as they, they needed to be paid. And any other unethical or... Um, conduct. Um, assessment of complaints, as I said, we look at the law, we look at the standards and we look at the policies and evidence at, at, at your local area when we're looking at um, was the person doing the right thing or, or not. We deal with complaints that in terms of how long does it take, how long's the piece of string. It depends on, it depends on um, the complexity of, of the case. We have a meeting with the HCCC every two weeks. Under the Health Care Complaints Act, um, the Health Care Complaints actually do an initial assessment. They've got 60 days to do that initial assessment. At the end of that initial, and that may be getting a response from an organisation or, um, or the person who's made the complaint or the person who has had a, ma a complaint made out against them. So they might need to get information from those three places. Initial assessment, 60 days, they come, uh, they then have a consultation meeting with the council um, and it's decided who's going to deal with the matter, whether it's the council or the, um, the Healthcare Complaints Commission. Now the Healthcare Com Complaints Commission deals with serious conduct issues 
Um, and so they, um, if, if it's something that might end up into a, in a tribunal, so it's a serious matter, or a professional standards committee, it will get referred to the, to the HCCC and they will do a detailed investigation. And that investigation may take a year or two. Or, I mean, it can take less, but it's usually a longer time. If it's a performance or health issue or a minor conduct issue, it's usually referred to the council, and we have a number of um, uh, you know, powers available to us, but I'll talk about those in a little, little bit. Um, so then it gets referred to us, and we um, usually take some kind of action, um, assessment, we do some kind of assessment, we'll ask the person to do a reflection on the incident, we'll ask for CPD, we'll ask for their um, CV, and that's to see what's their experience, because when we're looking at professional um, performance and professional misconduct, we judge it against a person of similar knowledge and experience. Um, so we want to know where they're at. So are they a new grad? We'd kind of assess that differently to someone who's been out eight years very different way of assessing. Um, so we get that information. Um, if, if we're concerned, really concerned about health safety, we have the option at any time through this process, including when we get the initial notification, to take immediate action. So the council can actually um, put on conditions within, well, I've, we've put them on within a day if we're um, concerned, but we also um, know that we, we we should follow due process. So if it's not if we've got a little bit of leeway, we'll tell the nurse that we're thinking about taking immediate action. We'll give them a short turnaround to give us a response, and then we'll consider that response. Sometimes the nurse comes in to to talk with a panel, and then they'll decide whether they want to put conditions or suspend their registration. So we can do that immediately. Usually within, we do most of that within fortnight or within 20 to 21 days at least, very quickly. Um, and that can be done at any time we get any new information. So once we've got the information, um, we go on, we can do, um, we refer them to the health performance or disciplinary pathway. Um, as I've just, I've spoken about the disciplinary pathway and going through the um, to the PSC and tribunal. The performance pathway consists usually of a performance interview, performance assessment, performance review panel, and um, if they get to that stage, um, they get conditions imposed on their, their registration. The health pathway, send them for an independent health assessment. Um, we can refer them to a panel if, if the assessment came, comes back negative and they can put conditions or suspend um, someone. So there's three pathways. Um, when we look at you know, how many, so this is of the 610 people in 2010, 102 had immediate action. So we took immediate action quite a lot. Um, 135 had a health assessment. Um, only 79 ended up in a panel with conditions. 12 had a performance assessment. We did about 100 um, performance interviews before the performance assessment, so a lot of them stopped at the performance interview level. Um, 14 had a performance review panel. We also do reviews. Um, 
we, can, we, we made inquiries about a notification 323 times. Um, we can make a complaint if we're worried. Um, so if someone's not complying with registration, we'll make a complaint and that may go to the tribunal in the end. Um, we've referred a complaint to a tribunal on 16 occasions and we've referred a complaint to the HCCC for resolution or conciliation. So that's when they get together, the nurse and the um, complainant together to work out um, how the complaint will be resolved. And that's usually less serious complaints about communication and those sorts of things. Um, we can refer it to another entity. Um, so if they become non not registered, we refer it to the APRA and the National Board. So if they do come back, we can address it then. But a, a lot, we didn't do anything. 272, almost a half of the complaints, we didn't do anything. We closed the matter at the initial consultation phase. So the ones that are left, we do a lot with. The ones that um, there were a lot that we didn't do anything with. Any? I'm conscious of the time. Um, has anyone got... Uh, my watch has stopped. Okay. I looked at how, specifically, how the enrolled nurses' cases were... Um, finalised in those two-year periods. So we had 17 surrender their registration um, and that would have been their own choice. So they just decided they didn't want to go through all this, we're going to surrender registration. 14 were discontinued, which means that at the consultation process we didn't do anything. Um, one was referred to APRA, two resolved um, between, um, with the complainant 31 had written advice, so when we looked at it, we kind of thought, yeah, probably shouldn't have done what they did, but, we, but it wasn't even at this, the, the level of um, counselling, so we, we just wrote to them and say, said, don't do that again. Um, seven had counselling. Um, one went to a panel, but they decided there was not to put any conditions on, and 17 had conditions. Does that surprise you? The council doesn't. It, the only only um, body that can deregister is the tribunal. So we can say, don't practice while we assess this thing in the immediate action because um, we're a bit worried about how how you're practicing. Um, but the tribunal can only is the only one. And I think there were, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I should have bought how many were deregistered, but um, small number like. 10. Very small number, and it's hard to do. The difference, the other thing is, the difference between the panels that the council run, so the impaired registrants panels and the performance review panels and the tribunal, is the tribunals are there to determine whether the particulars of a complaint are accurate, so whether they're true, whether they're fact, and if they're true, do those facts um, substantiate a finding of unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct. So first of all, they've got to say, did, did, is the complaint true? For the IRP and the PRP, we're not going back into the past behaviour. Well, we do look at the past behaviour, but we're not trying to prove whether that behaviour occurred or didn't occur. What we're interested in is, uh, is 
the practitioner unsafe now. So we do that. So we, we look at the complaint and say, well, this looks like it's a performance issue. But then we do a little bit more assessment. So we, we'll do a performance interview. We'll get the person to do a reflection. We'll get them to provide a response. We may do a performance assessment. Um, and that will tell us, hopefully, whether the person has done anything to actually improve their performance. And if they haven't, then we refer them to a, uh, to a panel. And the panel will consider what's, what's needed. Is this actually unsatisfactory professional performance? They have to make that finding as well, based on the assessment report that, that the council provides them. And they can say, well, how does that assessment report differ from the initial complaint? Have they improved? Um, so it's about future behaviour. Can we be satisfied that this person's going to be safe in the future? Some examples, um, and I'm going to go through these really quickly. Um, enro en enrolled nurse doing rounds, giving out medication, left one patient's medication in another patient's room. It was discovered later um, by another staff member. And a complaint of having troubles with an EN outside a clinical setting. There are instances where the practitioner has been abusive and threatening towards a complaint and her family. What do you think we did with those? It's not a, it, it was nothing to do with the clinical setting. So we didn't do anything. It wasn't related to, to the practice of nursing. We didn't do anything. In terms of the mistake, um, we, yeah, we just wrote to them and said, you know, be careful. It's one-off. Okay, um, audits. We do get audits and we get enrolled nurses falsely declaring their renewal um, in terms of the registration standards and another one, well, we get several, but these are just examples. Enrolled nurse did not declare her criminal history. So when you get audited, they actually look into your criminal history. So if you haven't actually reported any criminal behaviour, um, then uh, that will come out in the audit. And you're actually, it's an offence to give inaccurate information on your declaration. So one, you've created, you know, it's an offence against the law. And two, um, and particularly in number four, we can't be sure whether you're actually performing at an adequate level because you're not doing your CPD. So um, in that case, um, think we may do a performance interview. Um, and, and look, at, look at that a bit more. It, the criminal history, we'll look at um, carefully to see whether it, the suitability, so if it's a serious criminal matter, it would have much more impact on the practitioner than if it's a minor thing. Um, so if it's a minor thing, we might just remind them. If it's a sexual abuse thing, then it may be that we send them to a tribunal. Um, I'm gonna skip through this. Uh, this one's a, 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 um, a little bit more serious. There's con clinical concerns, um, excessive breaks, worried about health, fitness to practice, um, and uh, they've gone into a learning um, contract, but we don't know what that is. So we got a health assessment. First thing, do they have an impairment? Because that could be impacting their, their, their performance. It's silly sending them off to education if it's due to an impairment. They may, in, in the end, end up in education, but we need to know whether they're, they're, they're sick first. Performance assessment, 
so she had no impairment. Um, the performance assessment, she was deemed unsafe. Um, after the performance assessment, we took immediate action because we were concerned. Um, and then she went to a performance review panel and moved interstate. But she would be monitored interstate. Um, and then there's the misappropriation of S8 medications. Um, PSU advised because, and, and the nurse relinquishes her, um, her authority so that she can't give um, S8s anymore. Again, we took immediate action not to practice until reviewed, um, and then she went to an impaired registrants panel, and they would have put um, conditions on her requiring her to have treatment. Um, delegation and supervision. Um, people get confused about this a little bit sometimes, um, but when when someone is is um, supervising or, or accepting delegation, it's important that it's done appropriately. So people think whether the person is able to do the task that's being asked of them, that there are supports around, adequate supports for that person, that the person is adequately trained, and that they've given a sufficient um, explanation about what they're expected to do. And you should always evaluate whether that, that supervised task has actually been completed satisfactorily as well. In terms of accepting delegation, it's important to, that you know that you've got some responsibilities and you've got some rights to refuse the delegation if you don't have the knowledge and skills to actually do the task that, that, that's asked of you. And it's really important that you stand up for yourself and say, no, I can't do that for these reasons, and negotiate um, the teaching or supervision that's needed for you to be able to do it. Um, so you need to clarify, if you do accept a task, what you need to report to the supervisor. You know, what, what information do they need to, to know to, to know that you've been doing what they've asked you properly? You need to seek support um, and direct supervision until you're confident to do what you're um, expected to do. You're expected to take it when someone dele delegates something to to you, and you've accepted that delegation. You're accountable for that activity, to, and you're accountable for doing it safely. And you should participate in any evaluation in terms of the delegation. Now, I'm sure that you have all supervised unregulated un un workers. Yeah. So. In terms of that, it's important that you do it properly in terms of giving, giving the appropriate um, supervision, making sure that you, um, you know, teach when, when necessary or provide learning moments. You all said that you've been doing teaching. It's important that, that, that um, you continue to do that. You give appropriate feedback about um, how the person's going in terms of their performance because they, they won't know whether they're doing it properly unless you give them some feedback. Um, and acknowledge the work that they're doing. And there was just last one, oh. scope of practice. The, the there was some discussion about scope of practice earlier, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So one of the tools that the national boards got is the um, decision-making framework 
which kind of talks about how you make decisions about expanding your scope of practice. And they give you some principles to, and steps to kind of go through um, when, when it's being thought about. So the first thing is, do, if someone's asking you to do something, do you have legal authority to do it? So in terms of S8 medications, you don't have legal authority, and so you say, no, I can't do it. Um, if someone um, has a notation on their registration that says that they can't administer medications because they haven't got the knowledge and skills to do that, they haven't done the qualification, then you should say, I can't do that medication administration. I don't have the knowledge and skills to do it. I haven't got the qualification. Or I've got a notation on my, my registration that says I can't do them, do it. There should always be a risk assessment and management. If, if someone's expanding their scope, um, the organisation should um, do a risk assessment and management to see what are the potential safety issues around this um, new task or delegation. There should always be organisational support and capacity looked at in terms of asking um, people to do advanced practice. There should always be put when something is first introduced, supervision and support um, for whatever's happening. And that's to evaluate that the person that's being de delegated or asked to do that anything is competent, confident and accountable for what they're doing. And then always, always needs to be a discussion about who has the authority to delegate. And so sometimes it, it means, you know, you have to be certified to do a, do a particular task and who's delegated to then say that you're certified and, and safe to do that. And how frequently do you have to go through a recertification? So just because you have been certified once doesn't necessarily mean that holds forever. Um, particularly if you go away and practice somewhere somewhere else. And the other thing is that it may not go to another organisation. So just because you've been able to do something in one organisation, it doesn't mean you necessarily can do something in another organisation because all these things aren't in place. Okay? That's all I've got to say.